The glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days, the gory days. The gory days. days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory lane to remember our favorite horror movies from the 1980s and beyond. So the first horror movie that I saw that was like an unabashed love letter to horror movies was a little movie called Cabin in the Woods. Maybe you've heard of it, 2009, Joss Whedon, uh, Chris Hemsworth, a little movie that, like I said, is just a, well, simultaneous love letter and condemnation letter to the genre that is horror. And then, uh, of course, I earlier, a couple weeks ago, in fact, did The Rise of Leslie Vernon behind the mask, which once again is another love letter to horror. But little did I know that there was this little gem waiting for me in 1988, Waxwork. Have you guys seen this? Have you seen Waxwork? If you haven't, I don't know why you're listening to this episode. I'm going to spoil all of it. But um, uh, let me just get right into it. It was written and directed by Anthony Hickox in his directorial film debut. Now, how do you think a movie gets made, typically? Somebody has an idea, right? And then they probably pitch that to uh, uh, some friends. Uh, maybe a production company gets wind or a studio you're able to pitch to. And then uh, before you know it, a movie's made. <laughs> you know what? I actually, <laughs> I probably know more about how a bill becomes a law than how a movie is made. And you can thank uh, Schoolhouse Rock for that. But no, uh, in fact, Alex Alexander, or I mean Anthony, Anthony Hickox got his shot at making his first movie here after visiting L.A. and crashing into another car. The driver of that other car was Stefan Ehrenberg, heir to the Ehrenberg throne. You know, this like uh, art collector, uh, independent film producer guy who apparently was in L.A. He produced Jersey Girl and The Quiet American. And he just uh, happened to be looking for a script to produce. So Anthony Hickox <laughs> wrote Waxwork over four days. And then they moved forward and made the movie and the rest is history. Well, I mean, not quite. They were turned down by every studio that they approached, including Vestron, the one that ended up making the movie. Uh, but once Vestron's company's uh, head read the script, they reversed the decision. And it was a Vestron production given a budget of three uh, million dollars. And I learned something interesting in my research for uh, 1988's Waxwork. I learned what a completion bond is. And if you don't know what that is, a completion bond is a contract that guarantees monetary compensation if a given project is not finished. It provides protection if the contractor runs out of money or any other budgetary issues come up during the project. Why did I have to learn this fact? Because this movie ran out of money <laughs> and they only had 24 hours of film time left uh is that the the uh entities of the completion bond showed up and said you're out of money we're out of money you have 24 more hours to film and then that's it we're pulling the plug so you got to finish whatever's left at that time and unfortunately they waited to film the ending for whatever reason it's not like the whole movie was filmed chronologically but they left the ending uh the big giant fight the climax to the last few days of shooting so they had to 
rush and it basically resulted in a very truncated version of what Anthony Hickox originally wrote and envisioned for the ending of this movie. <laughs> and so it was given a limited release in the United States in June 1988 and only grossed $808,000 or so at the, back, at the box office. Ooh, that's got to hurt. So without further ado, let's just get right into it. This is 1988's Waxwork. Let's start with my first segment. What the hell just happened? So in a nutshell, this movie is about a group of college students that visit a mysterious wax museum. Ooh. Automatically elicits thoughts of the Vincent Price House of Wax or the uh, subsequent remake with uh, Paris Hilton. But um, there's six of them. Mark, China, Sarah, Gemma, James, and Tony. And these kids... Long story short, one by one, the college students, Tony, China, Gemma, James, uh, another jock named Jonathan, <laughs> Gemma, James, a jock named Jonathan, uh, and Inspector Roberts all fall victim to the evil uh, wax displays, and then they each awaken, and then a bunch of old white people show up at the end with weapons, and there's a big fight between the old white people versus the wax museum dummies. And then the bad guy gets shot, and the wax museum burns down. But a hand got away. And that's wax work. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's uh, as, as cleanly as I can make it, but, I mean, let's get down to it. Here's the deal. The Waxworks is a bunch of displays, and it's owned by this guy, David Lincoln, played by David Warner, who's this mysterious guy. He does a great job throughout the movie holding up his end of the bargain as, like, this big spooky, uh, like, museum curator for the Waxworks. Uh, it's a display of the 18 most evil beings, and uh, the 18 evil beings are, let's run through them, a werewolf, Count Dracula... The Marquis de Sade, a golem, the Phantom of the Opera, the Mummy, Zombies, Frankenstein's Monster, Jack the Ripper, the Invisible Man, that's 10 if anyone's counting, a voodoo priest, a witch, a snake man, a possessed baby, an axe murderer, a multi-eyed alien a giant talking Venus flytrap, and Mr. Hyde, a.k.a. Dr. Jekyll, a.k.a. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's 18 of the most evil beings. And so, if that weren't enough, our main character, Mark, his grandfather, collected trinkets belonging to the 18 most evil beings that have ever been, and a small piece of their dwelling as well. And the owner of the Wax Museum, David Lincoln, once again played by David Warner, is the guy who pushed his grandfather's face into a fire and stole the stuff at the beginning of the movie when he's smashing all of the jewels. That was David Lincoln killing Mark's grandfather. And so David Lincoln, the owner of the Wax Museum, sold his soul to the devil and is trying to bring about the end of the world. And here's how. I love this. There's, there's a voodoo belief that by making a wax effigy of an evil being containing a belonging that he possessed in his earthly form and feeding him the soul of a believing victim, 
you can bring him back to life. Once you've satisfied all of those things, once you've made a wax effigy, once that wax effigy has a belonging that that uh, horrible person possessed, and you feed them the soul of a believing victim, a victim, I guess, that believed in how scary they were, then you can bring that thing, that creature, that person back to life. And so... David Lincoln, the owner of the Wax Museum, is recreating scenes, tableaus from each evil character's life so that the display itself is a portal into like a pocket dimension. And so it's victims, if you think of it as like a, a spider web, they either just walk through them or they get forced through them or... Uh, yeah, whatever. And they become part of the displays. And so all 18 of the displays need victims. And when they all have victims, the 18 most evil souls that have ever been shall live again, <laughs> bringing about the voodoo end of the world. Yeah, so that's the breakdown. But let's break down the breakdown, shall we? These are supposed to be 18 of the most evil beings that ever existed. And it includes mostly supernatural creatures. The only normal humans we have on this list are the Marquis de Sade, the Phantom of the Opera, uh, a voodoo priest, uh, an axe murderer, and that's it. I guess I guess you could say Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde if, if I'm going to throw in Phantom of the Opera. I don't know, sci-fi, Phantom. He's supposed, is the Phantom supposed to be supernatural? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Mark's grandfather is supposed to have collected 18 trinkets belonging to the most evil men that have ever been. And that includes a possessed baby and a giant talking Venus flytrap. That's all fine. But what about a multi-eyed alien? It's It falls apart. It's really frustrating because the movie treats it like it's this big revelation when uh, Sir Wilfred uh, rolls into the room played by Patrick McNee and just like delivers this deluge of exposition to tell us what the deal is. And he just lays out that, Oh yeah, your grandfather had trinkets from each of those creatures, but the creatures that we've seen, one of whom is an alien makes no sense. How could, how he could have a possession from those things, let alone a piece of their dwelling. Like uh, does he have a piece of a spaceship in there? I, I assume so. This movie, I should, like, get it out of the way, is a comedy horror. It's got plenty of comedy right from the opening credits as a man is about to get, like, burned alive. It's playing sing, sing, sing. It's going like... It's, like, insane. And then you've got Hans, the, the, the butler, like, doing his whip bows and stuff. It's it's tongue in cheek a lot of it, especially the ending. Um, so I have to imagine that this stuff that I'm ripping into right now, it, I'm not taking it too seriously. It's just frustrating because they say like, how how do the portal? How does the display work? Well, it's uh it's an effigy to an evil person. Oh, okay, so it's like if you had a, a display to Hitler, and then in the it's always Hitler. You always got to go Hitler when you're saying the most evil beings, and he's not even on this list. Uh, uh, so you've got a display for Hitler and you also have to say like, okay, how about, uh, his bow tie? So his bow tie is also there. Oh, and also we have a strip of carpet from his uh, office or from his bedroom. And so we've got all of that. And then we push somebody who believes Hitler is evil, which is anybody. And, uh, 
then if the other 18 uh, effigies also got victims, then Hitler would come to life again. Oh, my God. And then that would somehow, with all of these disparate monsters, bring about the end of the world. It makes sense. I'm not going to bother comparing it too much to, like, Cabot in the Woods, but it makes sense in Cabot in the Woods that they're bringing about, like, the end of the world because it's, like, gods or whatever. But this, I'm supposed to believe that a snake man and a giant talking Venus flytrap and the Phantom of the Opera are somehow going to take over the world. There's a throwaway line about, like, if even one of these bastards gets out, the whole world could become infected in a matter of days. Infected? Like, this is a spread? I guess the zombies you have to worry about, but or, or Dracula, but I'm really not that worried about uh, the mummy or, or uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like, the mummy's pretty slow, and I feel like if we got a flamethrower, he'd be pretty manageable. <sighs> so anyway, the movie is essentially, like, uh, a half-regular horror movie, half-anthology. It's clever how Alex, or An- I keep calling him Alex, how Anthony Hickox found this. Uh, it's It's clever how he managed to extend a very simple premise into a long, longer story. And yet, I feel like it's worth bringing up that with stories like this, there's always this just lingering feeling that, like, there were 18 displays here. And the ones that we get are the Wolfman, Dracula, the Mummy, the Marquis de Sade, and some zombies. Like, those are all... We, we've seen those a million times before, and this is just you, Anthony, like, showing off that you know how these monsters work. It's smart, but it's, I always, even in Cabin in the Woods, you, you can't help but feel this sense that it's like, ah, what could have been? What else could we have seen? That's what makes the ending for Cabin in the Woods so impactful, is when you do get to see all of them, and you get to, like, just get little bits and pieces, like a buffet style, go, mm, ooh, I don't like that, mm, ooh, I like that, just getting little tastes of all the creepies running around. But here, there's, like, the alien and uh, the possessed baby i would have loved to have seen some of those uh portals or scenes or tableaus or whatever but instead we get what we get so let's go through them the first one the first tableau that we get is uh the wolfman and so the wolfman is played by john reese davies who does a pretty good job in this it's pretty funny i like how tony thinks that uh it's hypnotism and he thinks that like all his friends are watching him somewhere like in a room or whatever as he's hypnotized which i guess is a thing like the only time i ever saw it was in elementary school you know when some hypnotist came to school and uh, brought up a bunch of volunteers and they all got hypnotized into thinking like the chairs were gone or or something like that and or the floor was uh was water and they got all scared and so I, i i've never been hypnotized i'm not I guess open to that stuff so i'm never going to be a volunteer but he seems to think that hypnotism here is is strong enough to figure out like the rules and what to do it it almost feels like he's treating it like a video game like he has to achieve something but i love when the wolfman rips the assistant dude in half um and that assistant dude was james dr hickox hmm a little bit of nepotism in the hickox family i guess he needed some extra hands on deck to be a dude who gets ripped in half um the wolfman itself looks scary and big a little silly with like the the tall ears but i get what they're going for and the body horror for tony is really great too and 
you really do feel like the the emotion, the pathos in that scene as the uh, like wolf werewolf hunter killer uh, has to shoot to- uh, Tony. It's it's sad. And then the next scene that we get is Dracula. Dracula played by Miles O'Keefe. I love this one because it feels so tonally different from the uh, Wolfman one. And this is really, he really only has like two modes, I feel like. It's the guy's first movie. Give him a break. And he wrote it to to get out of insurance problems. With That's so funny. Like, oh, my God, I got in a car accident. Oh, oh, let's, let's, let's get insurance involved. Oh, well, now, hold on, hold on. I'm a screenwriter. Oh, that's crazy. I'm a producer. <laughs> Well, I could write a movie for you and we could make all of this just go away. That sounds great. <laughs> Let's go get coffee. <laughs> but yeah, I love how it feels so dreamlike and uneasy how she's like late to a dinner and they're being so uh, strange but polite and insistent and the food that the like raw meat looks looks properly nasty it, it really does it's funny to know that it's like rhubarb and fruit and stuff because uh they don't linger on it for too long and it just it looks so nasty and then that sauce the quote-unquote sauce is so bloody it's like almost black goo coming out of that uh, uh gravy boat um and then man my favorite part is when they she runs down into the basement when china runs down to the basement and uh finds her quote-unquote fiancé, you know, her character's fiancé in, in this uh, Dracula scene, Charles, uh, played by Tom, Tom McGreevy, uh, in the basement, like, strapped to that table with his leg out. I mean, like, his bone out. Like, that's what they were serving at dinner, I think, you know, is the implication. But, like, that instead of turning him into a vampire right away, instead they're just going to, like, slice chunks of him away one piece at a time while he's down here is so scary. And then when the rat is on him, like barely nibbling and how much pain he's in, I got to give that guy, Tom, Tom McGreevy. Like I said, I got to give him, uh, uh, I got to give him props. And when Stefan, the other vampire falls on it, Oh my God, it's the worst. Um, and China almost gets away maybe. Uh, but Hey man, Drax got a Drac, and man, he Drax that the uh, Miles O'Keefe with that Dracula smolder. <laughs> he does a good job. Um, the one after that is the Mummy, and I didn't expect to like this one. I've always felt like of all the movie monster creepies, the Mummy has been the one that's like uh, just just doesn't feel that great. It's, it's just a zombie. It's just another kind of zombie, but he doesn't turn you into a mummy. So he's weaker is what I've always thought. But this one is also very dreamlike. Uh, and I love how uh, the detective, the inspector, just kind of goes along with everyone else's surety. Like all the other people are are so confident in what's happening. And I feel like I've been there before where you're in a dream and you don't remember how you got to where you are, but everyone else seems so confident and you don't want to seem crazy. So you just kind of like go along with what everyone's doing. And and that's what it feels like as they uh, go and inspect the tomb and discover the curse. And then when the mummy finally shows up, the mummy played by Paul Badger is really cool in a classic way. He's slow, but he's unstoppable with what they have trapped in this tiny room with him. Like 
I could only imagine how we would, how you would try to recreate that kind of fear of a slow-moving but unstoppable thing trying to get to you in a small room. And they do a good job um, when he crushes the dude's head and uh, when he's, like, entombing them into uh, the sarcophagus with another mummy and another person. He puts the two of them in there like that. That gets me on uh, on a primal level. That's really scary being entombed in there like that. That's a fun word to say. I just like saying entombed. Entombed. It's just fun to say. I like saying that word, entombed. The next one is the Marquis de Sade, who's played smolderingly by J. Kenneth Campbell. The dude sells it. And this one's scary on a different level because it's like more about what people are willing to do to each other or more, I guess, about what rich people are willing to do to other people. And it's, like, sexy, scary. Honestly, they spend way too much time on this one. I feel like we could have had, uh, like, the Phantom of the Opera. We could have had these other scenes, like I'm saying, but we spend a lot of time on the sexy, scary Marquis de Sade with his uh, English prince friend and that English prince... Do you want to know who plays him? A little actor by the name of Anthony Hickox. But, but Kyle, that's the director's name. That's right, Charles. The director is also in the movie. He has a little cameo as the English prince, which is disgusting. <laughs> he would give himself that cameo where he like sizes up one of his actors for being a virgin. It's, it's creepy. And it's ultimately unfortunate that Mark basically has to rip Sarah away from the whole thing against her wishes. Like, even when he uh, gets her loose from her bindings or whatever, she still leaps back to the marquee because she's just so horny and mad with pain. It's it's weird. It feels like it has no place in this movie, frankly. Um, but but it's, uh, it's, it's the marquee. It's the marquee de Sade. Um, and then the last one we see really doesn't last that long, but it's zombies and it's very clearly supposed to be like night of the living dead. It's black and white. Um, and the hand bits fun, but Mark figures, <laughs> figures it out pretty quickly and, uh, escapes out of there. And that's all of the scenes that we get. So I've, I have to admit, I've never been to a real wax museum like Madame Tussauds or whatever. And I live, I live in Los Angeles and I've never been there because frankly, People, when you live in a place, you don't really go to the tourist traps. Like, I guess if someone came to visit, that would, I don't even know if that would be something we do. God, Hollywood Boulevard sucks so much. I'll do anything to avoid going down there. Um, but uh, I've never been to a wax museum. The closest is I saw, I did see the Johnny Depp as Edward Scissorhands kind of like on loan as, you know, advertising at Midsummer Scream a few years ago, and it was pretty creepy. It was pretty lifelike. I took a picture with it. It's on my Instagram, I think, on the gory, at the Gory Days. But uh, that's really my only experience with uh, wax museum effigies. But based on this movie, it looks like they actually they wobble a lot, and they breathe, and they can't hold still to save their fucking lives. I'm joking. The, the the actors in this movie who were supposed to play the wax models, I don't know why they bothered taking these kinds of shots, let alone keep them in. But they they can't 
they're they're wobbling, they're breathing, they're they're like twitching, they're moving constantly. And it's really it's really distracting as I'm like I'm I'm trying to suspend my disbelief. I want to enjoy the movie. Um let's see just uh, some other thoughts. So our main character is Mark uh, Mark Loftmore, played by Zach Galligan, who some of you might recognize from Gremlins and Gremlins 2. Well, I don't know if Gremlins 2 had come out. No, Gremlins 2 hadn't come out at this point, but he was in Gremlins. And uh, he is a preppy, pretty boy, rich piece of shit. He's got tons of money. His mom is classist and literally thinks the uh, help and her like butler and chefs and stuff are below her um and you know are, are are less than oh but shucks if only he had his best gal i mean the this rich asshole can't even be bothered to write his own damn essay on uh dictators and why they're bad and he forces his maid to do it who english is not her first language and bless her she does her best she writes a lot of pages on a topic that she knows nothing about in a language that she that is she is not mastered, but she does a good job <laughs> given all of that. It's gonna give him an F, but he's 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 a douche. And speaking of the dictator essay, why it's so weird that the lecturer is a Nazi and is just like played for a joke a couple of times. The the lecturer in their class like has the Nazi flag and is teaching Nazi history and then does a Nazi salute. It does not hold up. It it really doesn't. Um and and going back a little bit to the fact that um our main character Mark's mother despises the uh, assistants and the butlers and the cooks that she employs. It's really funny that Jenkins, the butler, he, he's, he gets stabbed and he's dying. And his last request is give me love. Give my love to the missus. <laughs> Dude, she hated you. <laughs> it's like the first thing we get about her. She hated your ass. <laughs> give my love to the missus. Uh, I thought that was, I thought that was so weird. Um, and then Lincoln's dead man trigger, uh, uh, David Lincoln, the owner of the Wax Museum, when he gets shot at the end, he does the thing, you know, like in video games or movies where like someone gets shot, a goon gets shot, and they're holding the trigger on their uh, machine gun as they die. So it just like sprays and everybody has to jump out of the way. It's cool, but completely pointless. It really feels like when the music cuts out and uh, it's just the sounds of the bullets, it really seems like it's going to be this big, impactful moment. But uh, just like his last jump scare, it's completely pointless. <laughs> his, his jump scare once he pops out of the wax. Would you like a closer look? Like, that's supposed to be, like, that's his tagline. Like, us in the audience are going to go, yeah, he said it. He said the thing one last time. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, my next segment, mystery LLC is where I ask questions. I really only have one. I mean, it's not really a question. It doesn't matter that a hand gets away at the end, right? Like it's just a hand. The whole thing was about evil beings and their belongings and a piece of their dwellings, like killing somebody. And it's just a hand, whatever. Okay. So. Moving on to my next segment, which is kills, kills, kills. There are so many kills in this movie. I'm going to try to run through this as quickly as I can. 
The werewolf, uh, in order of death, the werewolf killer's assistant is ripped in half by the werewolf. The werewolf himself is shot with a silver bullet. Tony is also shot with a silver bullet mid-transformation. Stefan's head, the, Stefan the lesser vampire in the Dracula story, <laughs> gets his head exploded. Uh, Coringa, Vela, and Emma, the three vampire ladies, all get staked. Um, but Gabriella is special. She gets staked with a bunch of champagne <laughs> when she gets thrown into the champagne and her paper thin skin is pierced with the champagne bottles in a way that they all start spraying through her. Uh, that's probably one of my favorite deaths. China gets dracula uh, turned into a vampire and then is ultimately uh, staked by Jenkins before he dies. Um, Jonathan, we don't get to see it. The jock, uh, he, he gets Phantom of the Opera. Um, the Egyptian boy in the, uh, well, in the Egypt, the mummy one gets his head crushed. Professor Sutherland, the guy there, gets stabbed uh, slash hugged when the mummy hugs him with the spear sticking through him, or it's like an arrow or whatever. I really tried to find her name, but I don't think anyone ever says it in the scene, and she's only credited this way. So Girl in Pyramid gets entombed along with the uh, Inspector Roberts, who also gets entombed. Inspector Roberts's partner gets the honor of being the only person to not satisfy the display rules and gets his neck broken by Junior, the, the tall butler in the movie played by, uh, let's see here, Jack David Walker um, in the movie credited as Jack David Warner. I always wonder why that is. I guess he changed his name. I guess some actors sometimes will want to be credited as a different name. People change their names all the time. Whatever. James is uh, allegedly eaten by zombies. We really don't get to see it. Gemma is whipped to death, ostensibly, by the Marquis de Sade. um, And then (laughs) gets shot through the stomach. (laughs) Take me! Take this, boom, uh, by Mark. And then in the brawl, there's a whole bunch of shit going on, so I, I just I just took away three highlights. <laughs> the possessed baby getting punted and then shot is pretty great. Um, oh, my God, the really shocking one is when Dracula changes into a bat, and then the crowd grabs the bat out of the air and shoots the bat's head off like point blank. <laughs> I, 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 I gasped at that. And then... Um, God, this one's so weird. It's it's a comedy when Sarah lifts Hans, the um the smaller butler played by ooh, uh, this is a difficult name. Miali Mizaros, Miali Michu Mizaros. Michu is his nickname, I guess. When she lifts him and just kind of places him back down into the uh, carnivorous plant, that's totally not Audrey too. <laughs> Um, those are my favorites in the brawl. The Marquis de Sade gets axed by Sarah, which is awesome. She finally gets hers back. And then Sir Wilfred finally is decapitated by the Wolfman. His head just comes right off. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, all right. So Screaming Themies. This is a comedy horror. So I really had to reach for uh, these themes. But um, Mind Over Matter. It's These are all pretty much jokes, but I mean, the displays can't hurt you if you don't believe in them, so it's kind of an element of the suspension of disbelief for horror movies. Maybe it's even a commentary on how us, the viewer, enjoys, appreciates horror, that those of us who keeps an arm's, who keep an arm's length out and go, well, this is a mo- 
movie and I won't allow myself to be scared. I'm going to enjoy this as opposed to us who jump into the experience and cross over the velvet rope and allow ourselves to immerse into the world of the horror and truly suspend our disbelief. Maybe and and because they become victims. Maybe that's uh, what uh, Anthony is trying to say is the true way to view horror. <laughs> hey, not bad. Uh, the sins of our fathers. Mark carries the cross his grandfather left for him. He never wanted to fall into this. And now just because of the coincidences and the happenstances of the very universe, he's fallen into this ancient, ageless battle between good and evil that ultimately ends with a bunch of old white people with like golf clubs beating up some uh, uh, makeup actors. <laughs> Um, no, the only real theme going on here is a clear reverence for horror. The credits say it all where uh, it says dedicated to Hammer, Argento, Dario Argento, uh, George A. Romero, Dante, Landis, Spielberg, Wells, Carpenter. Um, it, it's clear that uh, Anthony Hickox has an appreciation for horror movies and Stefan Arenberg, for whatever it's worth, supported that. And a lot of the credit has to go to the special makeup effects designer and second unit director, Bob Keen, for all of his hard work on this. Um, that's what elevates it. The it's 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 not the the story itself or even like the the, the actors and the characters. It's the uh, the use of like the open domain, public domain monsters with honestly better than decent. Uh, well, hmm not better than decent, decent uh, gore and uh, monster effects is what makes this like stand the test of time for me. So with that, it's time for me to rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. I thought about this. It's not as good as uh, some other movies that I've rated, but it's also better than the stuff. So I'm going to give this movie three thumbs. That's right, three thumbs, middle of the road, and I'm going to award those thumbs. Let's see, I'm going to give one to Patrick McNee as Sir Wilfred, because when he shows up at the end in his wheelchair that's, like, all decked out with armor and stuff, and uh, a, the chicken lands in his lap and stuff, you could tell he was having a lot. I hope he was having a lot of fun uh, with this role. So I'm going to give him a thumb. I'm also going to give one to China, played by Michelle Johnson, because... Uh, that vampire like um, segment is so cool. And I think she is the thing that sells it. It's not Dracula. It's her. And it's her like willingness to go along with it while still maintaining that like uh, demure dream. Like I'm not sure of myself and I'm, I'm not going to like reveal that right away. She does a great job. Maybe I'm giving her more credit. I don't know. But Michelle Johnson, you get a thumb. And then the last thumb I'm going to give to Sarah, played by Deborah Foreman. So the character's name is Sarah Brightman. And I, I'm joking, but I like to imagine in my head canon that it's the uh, singer, Sarah Brightman. Like, Deborah Foreman is playing the singer, Sarah Brightman, before she went on to be in Phantom of the Opera and uh, repo the genetic opera <laughs> and other operas that I can't think of, but um, yeah, Sarah Brightman. Deborah Foreman does a great job in this movie, specifically in the Marquis de Sade scene. I I don't know. I, I, I just want to give her a compliment. She did a great job, so I'm going to give her a thumb. And 
that's that. That's Waxwork here on the Gory Days. Thank you for listening to me, Kyle Leone. I forgot to introduce myself at the top of it, but who cares? You can follow me at the Gory Days on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, uh, all over the place. And I want to give a special shout out to a couple of other podcasts that I think the rest of you should be listening. If you enjoy this podcast, you might enjoy a little podcast that I guested on called Glee Boot. Uh, they did an episode a few weeks back that was about Rocky Horror Picture Show. They are watching every episode of Glee and reviewing it. Think of it about think of it like Office Ladies, but for Glee. So you should check out Glee Boot, G-L-E-E-B-O-O-T, on uh, where, wherever you're listening to my podcast right now. And then the other one you should give a listen to is Aged Like Milk. This is a podcast where a friend of mine and I guess a friend of theirs, who I don't know, but will be a friend soon enough, talk about movies and books and TV and music and stuff that has not aged very well, stuff that has not stood the test of time and probably uh, deserves to be put to bed. That podcast is called Aged Like Milk, and I think you can also listen to that anywhere you're listening to this. Otherwise, you can check out thegorydays.com to find all kinds of new episodes and stuff that I'm doing. Um, Until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days!